Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you confused by shellac formulas? Are you looking for a quality replacement blade for your old Stanley hand plane? Do you have an interest in Gothic furniture design? I'll discuss these topics more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 38 of the show for November 9th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank our new patrons. Thanks to John Gargano, Lawrence Schlack, and Karma. I hope hope that's good karma. Uh, Thank you all for signing up to support the show. And uh, thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your support helps keep the show going. So if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So if you've been following my Instagram feed, uh, you'll notice that the only, pretty much the only thing that's gone on around here uh, in the last couple of weeks has been the uh, digging and pouring of a couple of concrete pads for the new cabin where the uh, stairs from the front and back decks are going to come down. We had to pour some concrete there, so... Uh, that took up pretty much all my time for the last couple of weeks. Um, I did get to build a small, simple mirror frame for our half bath, and I finished that up. So that has to be uh, that has to be painted now. But uh, other than that, I really haven't done much in the realm of woodworking. But because it's been uh, such a busy week around here, a busy couple of weeks, uh, that's why my my show's a little late this week. So I apologize for that. But uh, we'll get right into the questions and get this thing kicked off. So our first question comes from Matt Morell. Matt says, I've read and watched Chris Schwarz's stuff. I've bought Mike Seamson's DVD. I've watched Bill Schenner's videos. I think he's talking about Bill Schenner. He says, I've watched Billy's videos. I think he's referring to uh, Bill Schenner. Um, I viewed both of Paul Suller's series. I've purchased Richard McGuire's video. I've watched your series at both Logan Cabinet Shop and YouTube. Recently read the Oregon Woodworkers blog. All of this multiple times over three years or so, and no, and no workbench yet. Talk about paralysis by analysis. My primary issue is that here in Central Florida, quality southern yellow pine is actually hard to come by. Really ironic. Further irony is I'm in the residential building industry. And eight quarter, yeah, sure. I recently contacted a lumber yard in North Carolina. The shipping was more than the material. A place in Alabama appears to have great stock, but a minimum of a thousand dollar purchase. That's a lot of benches, and I do not know if they even ship. So back to the home center. Not a huge deal because at this moment there's some number one in stock at the Big Blue. Okay, finally to my question. Do you see any issue with laminating two two buys together? thus forming a two and a half inch thick bench top. I would follow that with either a two by thick apron or at least a one by on the inside uh, and more bearers between the aprons, again, two by thick. Or did I get some, or I did get some great Doug fur from the orange store, 
which has been uh, milling pretty well. But first, I have to get the top worked out in my mind. Unless I miraculously find some eight quarter between now and then. So, Matt, paralysis by analysis indeed. Um, if you've read Chris's stuff and you've watched my stuff, and I haven't, I, I have read, uh, I have actually watched Mike Seamson's DVD. Uh, I actually bought it for my old woodworking club. And, uh, you know, I have, I have read a lot of Chris's stuff. Um, and of course, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with the stuff that I've made. Um, but there's a theme in all of it, and that is workbenches don't have to be made out of any special material. Um, if you look around at historical wood benches, essentially they are made from whatever is locally available and cheap. So it really does not matter what you make your bench out of. Doug fir, southern yellow, southern yellow pine. Chris uses a lot of southern yellow pine because where he is in northern Kentucky, um, it literally literally grows on trees. Um, they can get southern yellow pine very easily there. Most of the home centers in that area and the area where I live now, the construction lumber that they carry is southern yellow pine. Where I came from in New Jersey, I could not get southern yellow pine either. Most of the uh, construction lumber that I got in southern New Jersey was what they call SPF, or, or, or I'm sorry, hem fir. What that is, I have no idea. Could be some species of hemlock or some species of fir or some other mystery species. I have no idea what it was, but that's what I built my English style workbench out of. Uh, if I traveled up farther to the central part of New Jersey where my mother lived, I could get Doug fir construction lumber. Couldn't get that down in South Jersey where, uh, where I lived, but if I traveled an hour up to her, I could get Doug fir. Moral of the story is, Use what you can get locally available and cheap. Doesn't have to be eight quarter. Doesn't have to be southern yellow pine. Um, get what you can get locally available and cheap, and it's going to make a fine workbench. In terms of making a thicker top, I see absolutely no issue with laminating two two bys together. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's how Chris built his knockdown English workbench: was to take two two bys and laminate them together. Uh, if you're going to do that, my suggestion would be lots of glue, obviously, between the two pieces um, and screws. Lots of screws from underneath to act as temporary clamps. Get it, get yourself a, a you know a big gallon of glue and um, a five pound box of deck screws and screw the bejesus out of that thing from the bottom side. Once the laminations are dry then you can go ahead and take all the screws out and you've got yourself a nice thick bench top and I think that would work absolutely uh, just fine. So go right ahead and uh, get on it and get building that bench already. So our second question comes from Hugo Villargen. Hugo says, I have a few finishing questions I'm hoping you could answer for me. One, I've never made shellac and I'm a bit scared to make it. Could you give us an easy recipe for mixing it? Two, I often use a mix of boil linseed oil and tongue oil. Naturally, in the summer, it's easy to dry the parts outside, but in the winter, the chemicals give a nasty smell. Do you have any solutions? Three, do you have a good, easy-to-use, durable, low-VOC, water-based, and mostly child-proof finish recommendation? You've talked about milk paint, but that won't work in my application. All right, shellac. Um, shellac. Shellac's a wonderful finish. Um, not just for how easy it is to apply and how forgiving it is, but 
you don't have to mix it up in any scientific way. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. The The textbook answer is that shellac is shellac mixtures are measured by what they call a pound cut. What does that mean? Well, a, a pound cut or a one pound cut of shellac is defined as one pound of shellac dissolved in one gallon of alcohol. A two pound cut of shellac is is two pounds of shellac flakes or, or powder, whatever, dissolved in one gallon of alcohol. A three pound cut of shellac is three pounds of shellac dissolved in one gallon of alcohol. So you sort of, you see where I'm going with this, right? So essentially it's just how many pounds of shellac are dissolved in one gallon of alcohol. Now, naturally most of us don't want to mix up an entire gallon of shellac every time we make it. Um, so most likely you're going to scale that back. Um, if you want to know exactly what cut of shellac you're using, then just you know do a, a, a ratio of that formula. If you're trying to make a one pound cut, but you don't want to make a whole gallon, well, one pound um, in a gallon is a one pound cut. So you could do a quarter pound into a quart of alcohol or an eighth of a pound which would be what two two ounces uh, of shellac into a pint of alcohol. So it, it's a pretty easy to you know figure that out. But here's the beauty of it: it doesn't matter. I don't weigh my shellac flakes. I don't measure the amount of alcohol that I put in. I have no idea what pound cut of shellac that I use when I mix it up. What I do is I put some shellac flakes into a glass uh, ball jar, canning jar, cover it with some alcohol, swish it around, let the shellac flakes dissolve and start using it. I have no clue what pound cut of shellac that I'm using. What I do know is it works. Um, if, I, if, it, if I feel like when I do that, that the mixture that I'm using is too heavy and it's you know too thick and uh, I'm getting like brush marks and it's getting kind of gloppy, then I add more alcohol. If it's really, really, really thin and it seems like it's not building any type of, of film at all, um, then I'll add more shellac flakes. But I don't, I'm very unscientific about it. So um, I don't think you need to be afraid of mixing shellac. I don't think you even need to be scientific at all about it. Throw some shellac flakes in a jar, throw some alcohol on top of it and start using it. If it is flowing nicely if the brush marks self-level before the um, what do you call it before the alcohol evaporates and you're happy with the build that you're getting then you've got a good mix of shellac uh, if it feels too thick to you if if you're getting brush marks it probably means you don't have enough solvent you don't have enough alcohol so add some more alcohol and thin it out a little bit give those brush marks some more time to, uh, to self-level before the coat dries. Um, it's really unscientific, um, and it's trial and error, honestly, to me, is really the best way to learn to use shellac. So that's what my suggestion would be uh, in terms of mixing up shellac flakes. For your second question on drying boiled linseed oil in the winter. Um, you know, this is just something that you kind of have to work around. If you want to use linseed oil, it has a certain smell to it. Um, boiled linseed oil from the um, from the big box store 
and, and most boiled linseed oil that you buy today has heavy metal dryers in it, Japan dryers, and it's used to accelerate the drying of the oil. Um, but they don't have any smell. What you're smelling is the linseed oil itself. There's, if you're using just pure boiled linseed oil, what you've got is linseed oil and Japan dryers. Um, there's no solvent, there's no extra solvent in there unless you're adding a solvent. If what you're getting is a solvent smell, then what you're using is most likely not pure boiled linseed oil. It's some type of um, oil varnish mixture with a solvent, some type of wiping varnish. Um, so if that's what you're smelling, if you're smelling solvents, um, then I would say you're, what you need to do is to change your finishes if you're looking to finish indoors in the winter, um, if, you, if you really mind that smell because what you're smelling is the solvents. If you are, in fact, just using regular old boiled linseed oil from the hardware store, as I said, what you've got is pure linseed oil and Japan dryers, heavy metal dryers, and the only smell is the linseed oil. If, the, if you find the smell of linseed oil offensive, um, I don't know what to tell you. There's not a whole lot you can do other than to you know, put some kind of ventilation into that room to, uh, to pump that smell outside. Um, but you know, there's not a whole lot else that you can do. I don't, partic I don't necessarily find the smell of boiled linseed oil offensive. I actually kind of enjoy that smell, so um, it doesn't bother me when I'm finishing to, you know, wipe a piece with boiled linseed oil and just let it dry. Um, and the smell really doesn't bother me. And the smell goes away, you know, after a couple days or whatever um, of not finishing, not not applying any more finish. So it doesn't really bother me all that much. But I would say get, you know, some type of ventilation. If you can crack a window and put like an exhaust fan in there or something, um, you know, you can try that. I know you're in Canada and I know it, it's probably uh, quite a bit colder there this time of year than it is down here in Virginia. Um, so maybe the exhaust fan isn't an option, uh, in which case my suggestion would be to try a different finish in the winter months if you're having problems with the boiled linseed oil and, uh, and just can't tolerate the, uh, the smell of it. As for your third question, do I have a good, easy-to-use, durable, low VOC water-based and mostly childproof finish recommendation? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and I, I'm not trying to blow the question off. The fact of the matter is simply that I don't use water-based finishes. Um, I have not touched a water-based finish other than milk paint. Um, I have not touched a water-based finish um, in probably about 15 years or so. Um, I had tried some what they call water-based poly about 15 years ago, or they call it polycrylic or whatever. Um, it's essentially the stuff that goes on with like a bluish white tinge and then supposedly dries crystal clear. Um, I've tried that, was never happy with the way that it applied. It always seemed too thick to me. The brush marks didn't quite level out well. Um, those finishes are a pain in the butt to thin because, and I don't know, you can't just add water is my understanding. Um, I just don't know enough about them um, and I don't use them. I'm happy with the finishes that I use with my oil finishes, my shellac finishes, um, my wiping varnish finishes you know that I use. So I typically don't use water-based finishes. Um, I know they are gaining in popularity. 
Um, and maybe at some point I will look into them and, and try some out. But unfortunately, at this point, I just don't have enough experience, uh, especially good experience, with water any type of water-based finish to uh, to recommend one. Um, I will say that I know there are folks that do use water-based finishes quite frequently um, and do have some recommendations. So um, if you're listening and you do have uh, you have had some good luck applying uh, water-based type finishes, you know, water waterborne uh, varnishes and lacquers, um, you know, give me a, a send me over a, a voice note or a voicemail or shoot me an email um, to include in the feedback for the next show. If you have uh, had some good luck with waterborne finishes uh, and you have some recommendations that you could give to Hugo. So our next question comes from John Hughes. John says, I'm just starting out in woodworking and I'm looking at buying vintage Stanley number four and number five planes. How short a blade length is too short? The modern replacement blades from Stanley get pretty bad reviews. So do I want to get a plane with as long a blade as possible? If the replacement blades are not worth buying, does that mean that when the blade is ground as short as it can go, then I'll need to buy a vintage replacement blade or will other quality manufacturers have blades that will fit an old Stanley? So John, um, Definitely getting a plane with as long uh, with a vintage blade as long as possible is uh, certainly going to be desirable. Those old um, vintage Stanley blades blades are quite good steel, very easy to sharpen. Um, they hold an edge for a reasonable amount of time, but they are capable of they sharpen very easily um, and they get very sharp and are capable of doing fantastic work. So I would say if you can buy a plane that has a good long blade, um, then you should be good for you know most of your woodworking career. Um, but don't let that stop you. If the plane, if you find a plane that is just awesome, you love it, you're ready to buy it, but the only thing is the blade is all used up, don't fret. I would say, um, Definitely don't look into the Stanley replacement blades because, as you mentioned, what you've heard is, is probably pretty true. Um, they are kind of kind of junk, the modern Stanley replacement blades. However, Stanley replacement blades are not the only option. And in fact, I would say are far from the best option. There are a lot of makers these days making replacement blades for Stanley planes. Um, the, the, probably the most well-known uh, is a company called Hawk Tools, and uh, and Ron Hawk makes blades in both uh, O1 steel, which is um, it's an oil hardening steel, um, and it's probably the most popular and most similar to what the Stanley blades originally came with. Um, easy to sharpen on just about any sharpening media, and uh, and just. I mean, it, it, the blades hold an edge longer than the vintage Stanleys. They get just as sharp as the vintage Stanleys. They're just as easy to sharpen as the vintage Stanleys. Uh, they're just fantastic blades. He also makes blades in what is called A2 steel. An A2 steel is just a number. It's a, to signify that it's an air-hardened steel. Um, so in essence, when, when you harden a piece of tool steel, you heat it up to a red hot critical temperature, and then you quench it in something to rapidly cool it down. Well, O1 or oil hardening steel, you quench that red hot steel in an oil to rapidly cool it down, and that hardens the edge. 
with an A2, it's a different formulation of metals and it gets quenched in air to rapidly cool it down. Not quite as rapidly as quenching it in oil, um, but it still cools it down quick enough to harden that steel. The issue with um, A2 steel that I find is that it's not quite as easy to sharpen as O1. It's a much more abrasion, abrasion resistant steel. So the edge, once you do get it sharp, the edge does last quite a bit longer than O1. Um, but it, because it's an abrasion resistant steel, it makes it harder to sharpen because it, it obviously it's resisting the sharpening, uh, you know, action of the stones. Um, it's also doesn't sharpen very well on oil stones. You can sharpen A2 on oil stones and I've done it, but I don't like doing it. Um, if I have to sharpen A2, I'd rather do it on water stones that are much faster cutting, which is why I actually switched back from oil stones to using water stones these days because a lot of my newer planes my, uh, from Lee Nielsen uh, and other companies have A2 steel blades. So they're a little bit more difficult to sharpen, but they do hold a, uh, the, an edge a little bit longer once they are, uh, are sharpened. You can get replacement blades from Hawk, as I just said. Lee Valley Tools also sells replacement blades. Um, they used to sell them in a lot of different steels. I think they used to sell them in O1, A2, and now they also sell them in, in a new steel that they call PMV11. It's essentially just a powdered metal steel. Again, just another, um, another type of tool steel. Um, and it... it in short, it's a really nice steel. I have uh, I have it in one of my planes. Um, I would say it sharpens just as easy as O1 steel, but holds an edge longer than A2 steel. It's quite a nice steel. Um, but don't get all bogged down in the different steels. Just look for a a quality manufacturer of blades. So Hawk Tools makes good blades. Lee Valley offers good replacement blades. Um, there's a company that called Pinnacle Tools or IBC um, makes blades in Canada. Um, they make good quality A2 steel blades, uh, replacements for Stanley planes. Um, let's see who else. Ray Isles um, makes Stanley replacement blades that are available through Tools for Working Wood. Um, so there, there are quality replacement blades to be had for vintage Stanley planes. And if you have to replace a blade, that's the route that I would look is to, to one of those new manufacturers that are offering high quality blades. And you're going to get a blade that's better than an original Stanley in, in some cases. Um, some people would, would tend to disagree with that and they, they prefer the old steel. But, um, you know, you can look for a vintage uh, vintage iron if you want, or there are plenty of uh, modern manufacturers of high quality replacement blades for Stanley planes. Um, and, uh, and that's the way that I would recommend you go ahead and look if you end up with a plane that has a blade that is just too short. So our fourth, fourth question comes from Phil Grant. Phil says, thank you. Thanks for your awesome online resources. I have a question and a topic suggestion. And we're actually going to get to the topic suggestion later in today's show. My question is, can you tell us about your intro music? Who's playing and what is it? That jazzy piano is so relaxing, it makes me want to escape to my hand tool workshop. I'd like to know what other music hand tool woodworkers listen to. Listening to music while woodworking happens to be one of the many reasons I've shifted more and more towards hand tools. 
So, Phil, I'm sorry to disappoint you, um, but the music that I use for, for the intro and, and outro for the podcast is uh, it's not you know anything by an artist that you can buy that I'm aware of. It's actually just a jingle that comes included with the GarageBand app on my Mac laptop. Um, and it, it's just a, a free included jingle that uh, that they include uh, for you know for the podcast app. So um, it, it's called um, Park Bench, I think, is the name of the of the jingle. But um, it's just a jazzy piano jingle that they include with the um, you know with the program with the GarageBand program. Um, in terms of other music, I mean, I do listen to all different sorts of music. I, I'm certainly not going to make any recommendations, um, but you know, I listen to anything from uh, from blues, old blues, old BB King and uh, and Albert King and 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 all the Kings and uh, Muddy Waters and and Clapton and and all the old blues stuff. I'll listen to uh, to Sinatra, to um, you know '90s grunge and and '80s glam metal and uh, and you know '80s and '90s heavier metal and classic rock. And I listen to all kinds of stuff. So if you look at the music on my uh, my uh, my iPhone, it, you know it goes like I said. You, you never know what you're going to find looking in there. So, um, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to listen to, obviously, but I'm sorry. I unfortunately don't have a name or a source that you can get, uh, the music from the podcast. So that's all the questions I received for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to Bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to uh, to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic uh, comes from uh, Phil Grant, the, the last question we just had, uh, and it's on making elaborate frame and panel doors. So here's was uh, Phil's question. It says, my topic suggestion is how to make more elaborate frame and panel doors. There are plenty of online resources showing how to make flat, shaker, or simply beveled and fielded panels with straight rails and styles. Can you talk about making more intricately detailed doors as we might find in English castles and mansions? I found an article on fine woodworking by Lonnie Bird titled Mitered Molding Simplifies Traditional Doors from Issue 192. Focuses on using power tools and only mentions sticking as the traditional way of dressing up rails and styles. Are you aware of any videos demonstrating the use of a 45 degree shooting block to miter the corners? And how do I plan my layout? How can I dress up my uh, my panel? And would you have any book to recommend on the subject? So I love this question because, um, you know, we don't see too many articles or videos or anything. Um, on making doors like this. And I, I try, I tend to call them Gothic doors. Um, it's what I think Phil is talking about. Um, and unfortunately I don't have a lot of book resources, um, on the design style because it's not, uh, it's not a style that I find myself particularly that drawn to. Um, but, uh, I couldn't, I can recommend, Looking at uh, Thomas Chippendale's Gentleman and Cabinet Maker, Gentleman and Cabinet Maker's Director, um, Chippendale did have quite a heavy interest in Gothic design, and while 
that book is not going to give you plans or directions on how to build those particular pieces. There are a lot of different um, design options in that book. And there are a lot of heavily Gothic inspired designs, even though Chippendale's book, you know, was the, the mid 1700s. A lot of his designs in that book were um, taken from medieval and Gothic type design. Um, so that's one place I would, I would suggest to start looking at least for design options and, and possibilities. In terms of how to make those doors, um, I think if you really sat down to look at them, you would find that they're very similar in construction to a simple um, rectangular door. Um, and we'll just take like a, a cabinet door, for example, like an arch top or um, like an arch top cabinet door. Those Gothic cabinet doors tend to have straight styles up to the point where the arch starts, obviously. Um, and then what you have is a transition to this um, this arch that ends in a point at the top of the door, right? If you look closely, what you'll find is that the, there's often a separate piece added on there. And you can usually tell because the grain changes or you'll see a color difference between um, the vertical style and that arched style, that arched style extension. I don't know exactly what to call it, um, except in, you know, an extension or an arch top or something like that, um, because it, it, it's a separate piece that's been added on. Um, the real question is, how would you go about doing that? So again, having not studied these, um, these doors myself in person uh, and just seen them in pictures, um, I would tend to think that the styles were probably um, attached with some type of bridle joint, the, the straight style to the, um, to the arch, the arch portion of the style. Um, the rails obviously are, are just going to be, they're going to be very similar. They're going to be scroll cut in some cases. Um, and what you find is a lot of decorative fretwork in those pieces. Some of it is just sawn out um, and, and applied to the surface of a, a solid panel. Um, in other cases, you may have fretwork that is carved um, similar to like muntins and mullions in a divided glass door where you have um, a couple of different pieces that are cut with molding planes and then, you know, typically joined to the door styles and rails with short mortise and tenon type joints um, and then overlapped, um, you know, areas where the muntins and mullions overlap, you'll have a half half lap cut out of that or some type of lap joint, mitered lap joint. Um, the carved pieces, my guess would be, would be joined somewhat similar to that, to those muttons and mullions in a divided light door. And then the carving would be done after those pieces were, uh, were joined. But my first suggestion would be to, to really study the study, what, what it is you want to do, because there were a lot of different variations, uh, with, you know, wide panels and narrow panels and different, um, different pieces that were, were joined in. But if you, if you look at a traditional 
what I'll call six panel door, like you'll find in a lot of uh, a lot of modern homes, where you have styles on the outside, rails joining those, and maybe some short um, short style short dividers dividing the panels in the middle. Those medieval doors and those Gothic doors were made very similarly in terms of the construction, where you have long styles on the outside, rails that join the styles top and bottom, and then you might have shorter um, shorter styles in the middle dividing narrow panels. And then a lot of it was just carving added to that. You could have some, uh, again, what you refer to as sticking. That's what we typically call the molding that is on the inside edges of the rails and styles. Um, that could have been made with scratch stocks or molding planes. Um, and then a lot of the additional um, decoration would have been just carvings. Um, and those carvings could have been glued or or tacked with small sprigs or, or brads to the panels. Um, they could have been carved directly into the panels in some cases or carved into the rails and styles. So there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different um, different designs and different types. Um, so I would suggest, you know, definitely looking at something that you want to copy first and trying to discern you know, does this door have applied carvings or are the carvings done directly onto the rails and styles or directly onto the panels? Um, fretwork is another type of decoration we often see in, the, in this Gothic design. And Chippendale's got a couple of, uh, of good pictures in his book uh, on fretwork, uh, big cabinets with uh, fretwork doors, where it's almost like muttons and mullions, but you've got fretwork design um, with all these different pieces that are, are joined or you might have um, pieces cut out uh, and removed to create negative space. Um, so, you know, look at Chip and Nail's book and see what he's got in there because I know he's got a few good, good options and a few good designs as well. Um, I think that the toughest part to me in those doors would be just figuring out the joinery and figuring out the order in which everything goes together. The panels are going to be made very similar to simpler doors. You're going to have beveled panels, could be beveled and fielded. Um, that bevel, it, it's just a matter of how that bevel is made. In modern doors with raised and fielded panels, we see a very short bevel with a large flat field in the middle. Well, in a lot of those Gothic doors, you may have had just very long bevels and no field in the middle. The, be the bevels may have even met and come to a point in the center of the panel. Um, again, it just depends on the, the design of the door. When you're talking about panels that are not rectangular, um, I have done tombstone raised panels before where you have like this arch at the top um, with and those panels typically just have to be carved. That arch portion of the raised panel just has to be carved. There's really no other way to do it. Um, you can often create a rabbit with um, like a, a router plane, a knife to knife out the, uh, the shoulders of the rabbit, and then use a rabbit plane, uh, not a rabbit plane, a router plane, to remove a good portion of the waist down to your gauge line um, to create the rabbit in that curved area where you're not going to be able to use a rabbit plane to follow that. Um, and then you have to carve that bevel down with wide chisels until you get down to uh, 
down to your lines. Uh, and it's, it's really all just about laying in gauge lines, laying in guidelines with pencil or knife or marking gauges, and then removing material down to those lines is, is a lot of what it comes down to. Um, and seeing how the shape is, is coming out of the solid. Um, and I would, I would probably, I would likely make my arch top or Gothic style door panels the same way that I do tombstone raised panels. Again, I've never made the Gothic panels, but that's the way I visualize making those panels uh, in my mind, the same way that I would make tombstone raised panels. Anywhere there's a straight section, straight bevel, I would use rabbit planes to plane those bevels. And then anywhere where the bevel or the edge of the panel was shaped in some kind of curve, it would all have to be carved down um, with chisels and, and scrapers and such. Um, and then the rest of it, in a lot of cases, like I mentioned before, is just going to be applied decoration, whether that's uh, applied carvings, applied moldings. Um, one place you can you can look as well is at uh, some are, some of Peter Follinsby's work. Now Peter's working obviously in 17th century uh, New England style or, or 17th century English style. So um, most of the pieces that he's studying and looking at are coming from the 1600s. So still a little bit later than um, you know the English castle doors and things that you're you're talking about, you know, which are more medieval uh, Renaissance period, you know, 1400s, 1500s. Um, but there's still a lot of carryover of that Gothic, that Gothic style into those pieces um, in New England and, and those early 1700s pieces. And if you look at the way Peter builds his chests, um, a lot of, it's a lot of frame and panel in those chests. And the panels uh, are often flat, um, but sometimes beveled as well. Um, but a lot of those chests, the moldings are applied afterwards. They're not actually, in some cases, they're cut into the rails and styles. So, so um, don't don't take what I'm saying the wrong way. There are certainly instances where moldings are cut into the rails and styles in those pieces. But in a lot of cases as well, um, those moldings are applied after the fact and not cut directly into the rails and styles. So um, look at the work that Peter Follinsby does, and I think it will also help to guide um, how some of those doors, um, those Gothic doors, were made. Um, a lot of the carvings that Peter does are very similar to some of those English carvings in uh, in those medieval and and, uh, and Gothic style doors. So look at some of the furniture from um, from 17th century England. Um, for some ideas there as well. So unfortunately, I don't really have a whole lot more to offer on the topic, again, other than to um, really study the, the doors and look, in a lot of cases, just by looking for color differences between um, the different parts of the door, you can tell in a picture, in a lot of cases, how... Um, where the different parts were. You may not be able to tell exactly how they were joined together, but you'll at least be able to get an idea, you know, where there's a different piece. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, talking about the, um, the Gothic arch top doors, um, 
to my eye, when I look at pictures of those doors, it looks to me like the styles are actually made in two separate pieces. There's the straight section and there's the arched section. And I would imagine they'd be joined by some type of, um, some type of bridal joint, most likely, so that uh, the top arched part of the style could be let into the straight bottom style that's taking most of the, the weight of the door. Um, so I would look at a lot of pictures and a lot of different styles um, of doors and uh, and just look at the different decorations on them. You can usually tell, you know, if a carving is applied or if it's um, carved directly into the rail or style or panel. Moldings can sometimes be a little bit more difficult to tell if they're applied or um, cut directly into the rails and styles. But if you look closely enough, you'll often see um, small nail holes in a molding if it's an applied molding, whereas in... Um, in a molding that's cut right into the rails and styles, you won't see those nail holes. So you're going to kind of have to, you know, study them and break them down, and uh, and just observe a lot of pieces. That that would be my suggestion. Um, it's how I learned to build a lot of period furniture, not by looking through books. I did look through a lot of books on on the furniture, um, but really just by studying originals, going to museums and looking at originals, picking up museum style books. And looking at a lot of pictures of originals, um, and you know, do an Amazon search. Uh, and yeah, okay, let's try that again. Do an Amazon search um, in the books section for Gothic furniture or medieval furniture or medieval architecture or Gothic architecture, and I would be willing to bet you'll find um, a lot of books that will have pictures and, and uh, examples of different types of Gothic architecture and carving and decoration. Uh, and I think you'll f be able to, to kind of go through that list and just look at what Amazon shows you. Uh, and you know, then you can either grab those books from Amazon or see if your local library has anything. That's what I tend to try to do is um, do an Amazon search first. And if I find some stuff there, some books there that look interesting that aren't already in my personal collection, if I think I might want to look at them, uh, I'll see if my local library has them before I go ahead and buy them. Uh, and that's always been, uh, I found, a good way to uh, find new ideas and new books that I may have not heard of before. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt038. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.